Well, good morning and welcome one more time to everybody. We are uh, starting off this brand new series here today called People Matter. So if today is your first day at Encounter or first day at a church in general, it's a perfect time to start attending regularly because you didn't miss out on anything so far. It's a brand new series, part one of, for this month of June. All right, so what this series is all about, in case you missed it, we want to do kind of this overview so we don't, uh, we don't miss out on anything. Uh, what this series is all about is this simple, this simple statement that Jesus took time away from teaching. He took time away from doing all those incredible miracles. He took time away from that stuff to spend time with people, to spend time with people like you, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, insider kind of people, and outsider kind of people that Jesus wanted us to know that people matter to God. You matter to God no matter what, that there is no one with no value in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to drop in through these different uh, stories in the book of John, which we'll get to in just a moment, just to show how much that God valued people. And so as we kind of kick things off here, I want to bring us back to our elementary school days, which is dangerous for some of us, and I know that, that's okay. But as we kick this off, I want to, I want to bring us back to a particular game that many of you may have played on playground or maybe in gym class in elementary school. The game is called Simon Says. And let's see if you know how to play Simon Says. When I say, Simon Says, raise your hand. All right, pretty good. You're figuring out Simon Says, touch your head. Pull out your phone and join a small group. No, that's good. Okay, okay, you can put your hands. But seriously, you should join a small group. It's small group Sunday after all here. And so you got that card when you came in here. And we just want to do life together as a community. So this is a perfect on-ramp to, to do that. But that's how Simon Says works, right? And, and a lot of you, you know, you've played this game. Maybe some of you were good at this. I was not very good at this. My experience playing Simon Says in third grade in gym class was that two things. Number one, I was passionate and dedicated and very competitive. And some of you know that about me. And so you're like, that kind of makes sense, right? I wanted to win every single round of Simon Says. And the other thing about me is that I got so excited about everything that I always was the first one to get out at the little trick that came. And some of you know me are like, yeah, it also sounds about right. <laughs> so I, for the life of me, I cannot remember a single time of ever winning Simon Says. But that's okay. That's okay, because when we grow up, we stop playing Simon Says, but for some of you in the church, what we don't do is we don't grow out of playing this much more insidious game called Jesus Says. And so I want to kind of get real with some of you this morning and know that, that, that sometimes our perspective of Christianity, our perspective of faith is like one big game of Jesus Says. And it's kind of what we grew up with, or maybe that's the message of the church or Jesus Christ that a, that a neighbor or a colleague, somebody told us about, and that's just kind of what has lingered around. And so we've been playing, Jesus says, go to church. And so we have to go to church. Jesus said, read the Bible, and so we have to read the Bible. Jesus said, pray, so we find ourselves having to pray. And we want to do everything. Why? Well, because Jesus said. And look at that woman right over there. No, 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 Jesus didn't say, right? Don't do that because that, that'll get you out if you do something that he didn't say or don't do something that he did say. And some of you know what it means to get out in the game of Jesus says. Because for some of you, right, you got out because your parents got a divorce when you were a kid. And that like automatically by proxy just put you out and you're like against the wall somewhere outside watching everybody else say, watching everybody else play Jesus says. For some of you, you made a bad financial decision and like the stink of that thing just follows you around everywhere that you go. And that's the thing that like puts you out. 
For some of you, it's your temper that put you out. For some of you, it's your pride that puts you out. For some of you, it's your lust that puts you out. But whatever it is that puts you out, you are out of that game that Jesus says. But look, here's, here's the thing about all of that, though, is that if, if you were to set everything aside, that what, maybe what you know or what you learned about Christianity, not from Jesus himself, if you put everything aside that, that came from maybe somebody talking on a stage like I am with a microphone and preacher man. Maybe you put everything aside that what you learned growing up from your neighbor or, or maybe Sunday school teacher well-meaning. If you put all this sort of stuff aside about the things that Jesus or people told you about Jesus and you actually open up the Bible for yourself and you read the story for yourself, particularly the life and the ministry from those eyewitness accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you start to get into that, what you're going to find is that Jesus, it seems, Jesus was never interested in playing Jesus says. It's like if that's what this whole thing kind of, kind of distills down to for you, you're missing out on something incredible. You're missing out on so much. In fact, what Jesus seems much more interested in doing, what, what Jesus is infinitely more passionate about than winning or losing at playing, Jesus says, what Jesus is so much more interested in is relationships with you. It's stopping whatever he's doing to spend time with people asking the questions that you're asking. It's stopping everything and just hanging out with people exactly like you and making sure that you know that you matter no matter what. And so what we're going to do throughout this time is we're going to just take a look at different stories in the book of John and see how different people matter to God and see how we all, no matter what, we matter to God no matter what. So if you have a Bible with you or if you'd like to use one of ours underneath the chairs in front of you, the words are also going to be on the screen behind me. You can flip to John, the book of John chapter 1. And as you find the book of John chapter 1, you can look it up in the Bible app as well. You can... Uh, you can uh, find it that way. We're phone-friendly church. John 1, kicking it off here. Um, John is a weird passage, a weird gospel compared to the other ones because the other ones start with, with stories about Jesus. They, they start with like, you know, Jesus was born in a manger and there was shepherds out in the fields that night and there was like oxen lowing and no room in the inn, the Christmas story. Or at least the, the gospel of Jesus story according to Mark starts off with Jesus doing ministry and the whole thing kind of makes sense. And then you get to John. And it's like, where did this thing come from? Right out of right field, that's where. John starts off his gospel in chapter 1. He's like, in the beginning was the Word. And I'm like, well, that's about as clear as mud. And it's like, no, no, but the Word was with God from the beginning. And you're like, what in the world? And Word is capitalized. So if you're just like reading this thing for the first time, you're going like, what in the world is happening? What is this Word? Well, it doesn't mean a lot maybe to you just reading it without any context on it. It meant a great deal to them. Because John is like picking up this big philosophy of the day, the word in Greek, the language that he wrote in, it was the logos, the reason, the rationale, like this life force that like permeated everything. And John starts off his gospel, his Jesus story in a very heady, very theological, very philosophical kind of way. And John starts it off and going, the word, the logos, the reason, the rationale, the, the logos behind everything, the word, it has a name. And its name is Jesus. And Jesus actually lived among us. And John says, I saw it. And I lived with him for three years. And this is my conclusion. He was the person behind the philosophy of old. But very, very quickly, it's huge for us. Very, very quickly, John moves into this like theory, idea, theology, philosophy kind of thing. Very quickly, he gets to people. 
which I think is so cool. So one of our takeaways today, in case you, in case you miss it later on, I just want to make it clear. One of our takeaways is that God is not a, a formula to figure out. He is not an equation to solve. That God is a person to know. And even in his very heady introduction of his gospel, John is like, yeah, yeah, logos, this is all theology, philosophy. But real quick, he lands the plan and goes, and then he very, very quickly started meeting people and started making a difference in people's lives. And we get to John 1, and we're going to start off in verse 43 now, and we meet one of these people that he made a difference in very, very quickly. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, that's going to be one one friend that we're going to meet here and hang out with. And he said to him, follow me. And so Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. But Philip found another guy we're going to camp out with here, Nathaniel, and told him, we found the one. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the law and the prophets is a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament, their whole Bible, everything points to this one. We have found the one. You wouldn't believe it. Nathaniel, come on now. He said, follow me. I'm following him. You should follow him too. We're so excited. We have found the one. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And here's the response to verse 46. He says, Nathaniel says, Nazareth. You got to say it like with a tone, right? You got to say it like Nazareth, right? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asks. Right? He doesn't like Nazareth so much, right? Because Nazareth has kind of a reputation. All right, so a couple things about this. And I'm, some of you might not like the direction that this thing is going. But I'm from a town about 20, 30 minutes west of here. And I went to school in a town called Hudsonville. Some of you are familiar. Don't raise your hand yet, Okay. So a little thing about Hudsonville, where I went to school, is that it was surrounded by onion fields. And so it was a very potent smell, aroma, around that school. And when it didn't smell like onions, it smelled like the fertilizer you would put on the field before the onions grow. So it basically just smelled all the time. All right, that's Hudsonville. Hudsonville, though, Hudsonville is not Nazareth for me. Borculo just outside of Hudsonville, right? This is the time, I mean, it's just, as an eighth grader, I'm graduating into the school, and, and you know, I graduated with like 70 kids, and, and another big you know, school, middle school graduated into, into ninth grade, into that high school there, uh, about maybe 70, 80 kids, something like that. So, so like, there's, a, there's a bunch of kids coming in. I hear like Borculo graduated like two students, and I'm just like thinking in my mind about what this Borculos middle school is all about. And the image is like, I think it's like a one-room schoolhouse, like pioneer kind of school, right? I'm imagining like, like, like girls in these little like bonnets and dresses and, and boys with their overalls and like showing up with a lunch pail, paw. Like this is my idea of like, and if you're from Borculo, I'll make it even worse. Because like on the way, where, where I grew up, on the way to get to the lake shore, where I had to go to the beach to hang out, it was a, it was a street called uh, Fillmore, I think it was, or Port Sheldon, something like that. Anyway, and it just straight shot right west, right out to the lake shore, to Lake Michigan, except for it would jog in Borculo, downtown Borculo, which consisted of essentially just a diner at that point. That's it. That was downtown, downtown Borculo. Except the problem was, while I was in, in like middle school, high school, there were like two or three vehicles that didn't do the jog around the diner. And they just like tore right through that thing. And so my idea of a kid, I was like, Borculo was like, Borculo? That's the like one room schoolhouse. I was like, Borculo? I mean, that's, that's like the, that's the place where people just drive through diners all the time, right? Like that's 
Borculo. Okay, but so the thing is, and you have, you have your Borculo too, so you can judge me and that's fine. You're probably not wrong. But, but you have your Nazareth, you have your Borculo, wherever it is that you kind of hold a certain prejudice about, and that's what it is. It's, it's a prejudice. It's unfair. It's not right. You shouldn't, shouldn't hold that kind of thing. But, but we hold them. We do. We do that all the time. That's sin. We can name that. That's all right. But the thing about this whole thing is, about Nazareth here, for Nathaniel, is that it doesn't so much, listen, this is so important, it doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us more about Nazareth in this story, it actually tells us more about Nathaniel. So as I'm talking about all my prejudice about Borculo, and you're probably like a few of you going, listen, I know some great people from that town, it's a fine little town to be from, and it's a great little community, there's all kinds of positive things I'm sure about. So when I'm up here just ripping on Borculo, and side ripping on Hudsonville, like, that just shows... That just shows my prejudice about those couple areas. That just shows more, doesn't it, about me than it does about those places. Okay, so that's how, that's how when the story unfolds, this is where kind of what we get to with, with Nazareth. And a lot of times we're like looking at this and like, wow, he really hated on, on Nazareth. I wonder what was going on there. And so you start to like dig in at Nazareth and like maybe it could be this or that or maybe nothing good comes from Nazareth. No, 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 it's not about Nazareth at all. It's all about Nathaniel because it tells us what kind of person Nathaniel is. Nathaniel's the kind of person that holds these prejudices. Nathaniel's the kind of person that like keeps these things in mind and, and like runs everything like through that kind of a grid. Nathaniel's kind of like the skeptical person that always has a reason why something is wrong no matter what. And he will not be convinced to the otherwise. It tells us about Nathaniel. And by proxy, I think it tells us about the Nathaniels in your life. Because the Nathaniels in your life are the people that have a reason queued up why they can't believe, why they can't take that next step. There's a Nathaniel in your life who's like, listen, I can't believe in a God because blank. I can't believe in God because I see all this evil, all this suffering, this bad stuff in the world, so there's no way that I'm ever going to believe that there's a good God behind it all. And you're like, fine, that doesn't like get you anywhere. There's still this bad stuff, and now we don't have hope or a solution. But it doesn't matter. I can't believe God because blank. And there's always a blank. There's always a reason why I can't believe in God. The Nathaniels in your life are the people that are like, well, listen, I can't trust the Bible. I can't believe in the Bible because I took a class from a college professor sometime who told me that it wasn't written when and it wasn't written by whom. I thought it was written when and by whom. And so there's no way that I can, the whole thing is, the whole faith system is entirely, is entirely untrustworthy. I'm just pitching everything entirely. That's Nathaniel, the person who's always got a reason why, always got a kind of skepticism to it. I can't believe because. Because somebody was a Christian and they hurt me so, so badly, I can't believe in the God of that person. I can't believe because. And fill it in. Maybe you work with Nathaniel. Maybe you're neighbors with Nathaniel. Listen, maybe you're married to Nathaniel. But what's revolutionary about this story is because it gives us an insight, it gives us a clue about how we relate to the Nathaniels and what happens next. This simple line, Philip, remember, he's the friend. Philip comes up to Nathaniel. Oh, we found him. We found the one. We found the Savior, the Messiah. And this is what he says, continuing on in the verse 46. He says, come and see. That's all Philip says. Come 
and see. I know you're, you're not thinking that's quite so revolutionary, but, but let me show you what he doesn't say. Right? He doesn't say, hey, man, you got to stop doubting and believe. Hey, man, you got you to read this book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. You got to do this, do a book report on it for me by next Tuesday. Right? He doesn't give Timothy Keller's Reason for God fine book, totally recommend it, and say, hey, this is what you got to do. You got to get your head straight. You got to get in the game. There's answers out there. You're just blind to it and you got to see it. Let me tell you what, what Philip, the friend, what he doesn't do is he doesn't go up to his doubting friend, Nathaniel, his skeptic friend, and say, hey, hey, man, I mean, you got to like take those blinders off your eyes and see this guy's in front of you. I got 10 solid proofs for the existence of God and that God is Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. I've got a blog that I wrote up specifically for you, right? That Philip doesn't do any of that. He just simply says, come and see. See for yourself. Come meet Jesus. And I just think about the sheer power behind that. The never underestimate the power of an invitation. To simply say, hey, you want to talk about it? Do you want to come with me? Do you want to come meet Jesus for yourself? I don't have answers to the questions that you're asking. I think they're fine questions. I've asked a number of them myself. I don't know what the solution to any of this stuff is. But hey, do you want to explore this thing together? Do you want to read those eyewitness accounts with me? Let's start off in the, in the gospel of Luke. It's straightforward. Do, do you want to come to worship with me and just try to like experience what I experience on a regular basis? Do you want to come here? Do you want to meet Jesus with me? I love Love, love, the power of the simple invitation that Philip offers to his friend Nathaniel. And I love that even though he's prejudiced against Nazareth and the people who come from there, even though he's a skeptic, and he's kind of a, we find out later, he's an intellectual guy, he's kind of an academic, he knows his Bible really, really well, he's excellent at playing, obviously not Jesus says, but he's excellent at playing like God says and following all the rules that way, he's totally in. Even though all of this is totally true about Nathaniel, the power of a simple invitation. He says, yes. He says, yes. And so he comes up to Jesus in verse 46. I'm sorry, 47. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, Jesus said of him, that's important. He says of him, two other people, but probably within earshot of Nathanael. So, so everybody hears. He says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So he gives them high praise. And there's a couple layers onto this thing. Right, like the, the first kind of layer on, on this whole deal is that we just heard Nathaniel say some awful stuff about Jesus, like Nazareth, right, with the tone, Borkula, whatever. Uh, nothing good can come from that place. He just revealed his own prejudice, right? He dismissed Jesus, but Jesus does not dismiss Nathaniel. And I, just, I, just, I think that's so powerful for us today because whatever your faith story is or isn't, you may have had a lifetime of dismissing God, and I just want to let you know that God has never for a moment dismissed you. Even though he has hated on and revealed his prejudice to Jesus, Jesus still, listen, this guy, like him or hate him, he's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. He tells it like it is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor him publicly, even though he bashed me just a minute ago. I love that, but then there's another layer underneath that layer which is the genius of Jesus. You really should think about following him. I, it's fantastic. But the genius of Jesus here is like, in Israel, there's no deceit. So we wind back all the way to, uh, to the Old Testament, the Genesis story, that where God creates this nation of Israel. 
And he does it from one man named Israel, 12 sons, 12 tribes. They kind of blossom out into the, into the nation of Israel. But it all started from this guy named Israel. Except he wasn't always named Israel. He was originally named Jacob because he came, he was born as a twin, younger to him, grabbing onto his brother's heel, which is like a bad omen in ancient Middle Eastern times. And so they're like, oh man, he's kind of a deceiver trickster. We'll name him deceiver trickster, Jacob. And so he came out and he lived, he owned that name, right? <laughs> he, he tricked his older brother into giving him his birthright. He deceived his dad and then taking on the inheritance, the blessing, so there's nothing left over at all. He ends up spending time running away from his family for fear that they're going to kill him, not because they're so bad, but because he is. Like, this is the guy, and I just I love that God's like, yep, he's my man. I'm going to build this whole thing. And so, you know, whatever your background, there's Jacob, right? And the guy says, but, marketing campaign, you're going to need a new name. And so he renames Jacob, deceiver, Israel. And now Jesus sees this guy, Nathaniel's coming. He's like, man, that's Israel right over there. Except for unlike the historical figure, Israel, Jacob, and this guy, Nathaniel, listen, this guy doesn't play games. This guy doesn't cheat. He doesn't deceive. He tells it like it is. There is no deceit. There's no Jacob in this Israel. He honors him because no matter how much he has dismissed Jesus, Jesus will never dismiss him or you. The story continues on. Nathaniel engages them in a conversation in verse 46 and he says, how do you know me? Good question, Nathaniel asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. You remember that part when nobody was around? I saw you under the fig tree. So fig trees in the Old Testament and New in that culture, uh, fig trees were well known for the shade that they provided because even during high seasons of, of drought, lack of rain, in case you didn't know what drought meant, um, the fig leaves would stay nice and, nice and green, lots of foliage on them, uh, providing a lot of shade. You could even say that if you were in a pinch, naked in a garden and looking for coverings, a fig leaf would be just fine. You'll get there. You'll get there. It's in reference to Genesis, okay? Some of the paintings that you see, there's always like strategically placed fig leaves on the people, right? It's because it's probably what they went for. Uh, fig leaves were just big, leafy, no matter how dry it was. It was, always, it was always fig leaves around. It was also true that they had a reputation in Hebrew literature that kind of the academic type, the intellectual types, would like to hang out under a fig tree to do their private readings, and so we start to get this picture of Nathaniel as the kind of guy who's the academic, intellectual, skeptic, doubter who's hanging out underneath a fig tree doing his readings. And Jesus is going, I saw you under that fig tree. And then in verse 49, Nathaniel, he doesn't just observe, he doesn't just say, but no, Nathaniel declares, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Is anybody else like suffering whiplash from like, wait, what? I mean, we went from like skeptic, kind of never going to believe it, nothing good comes from Nazareth, Nathaniel, to like, you are the son of God. How did that happen? It was a little trick from preachers. Um, maybe it's just me, I don't know. But like sometimes in my personal devotional life, I'll come across a passage of the Bible that just makes very little sense to me, like this one. 
that I'm like, what in the world is all of that about? That doesn't make any sense at all. And so I'll look for a place in a series later on to like slip that one in because it's like, well, then I can do a deep dive, figure out some maybe truths that I didn't see before. Chances are maybe many of you wouldn't have seen those before and I'll share them with you and I can do like two birds with one stone. Super efficient that way, right? And so that's what I do. I'm like, what in the world is with this story? And so I like put it in the series here and do a deep dive in the commentaries and the trusted bloggers and the people that write about this stuff that I, uh, that I read a lot. And I'm like, hey, now listen, I can tell you just what it was under the fig tree because all these commentators, right, they get together, these smart dudes, and they're like, I just don't know. <laughs> so like church, I just don't know. I truly, like I, we don't know. We have no idea what happened under the fig tree. We don't know. And it bothers not just me or probably some of you, but it bothers everybody to say, like what happened under the fig tree? Because clearly it was something so powerful. Clearly it was something so formative in his life that Jesus, the only thing he has to say is, hey, Nathaniel, you know that thing that happened under the fig tree just a minute ago when you thought nobody else was around? Hey, Nathaniel, I saw that. And it changes everything for Nathaniel. And you know, we don't ever find out what it was. John is writing this. And Nathaniel, by the way, he follows Jesus as one of those original 12 disciples. He follows after Jesus. He lives with Jesus by proxy. He's also living with John, the disciple that wrote this. And John lived with this guy for like three years. And maybe he found out what was up with the fig tree. Maybe he didn't. But for whatever reason, John knew enough not to include it in John's story. Because what he knew is that what happened underneath that fig tree that day, whatever it was, it was between Nathaniel and God. It was personal. And that's the point. Maybe it was a broken heart that he was lifting up to God. Maybe he was lifting up his fears or his anxieties, his insecurities about the future, handing that up to God in a broken moment. Maybe it was a heartfelt confession of sin that he has never audibly said before. We don't know what it was, but it was so personal to him that when Jesus said, listen, man, I saw that and I still want you to come and follow me. It changed Nathaniel's life. Nathaniel would follow Jesus after that and he wouldn't turn back. Nathaniel would be one of, those, one of those disciples that would keep on believing even after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Nathaniel would go and do missions work in India with Thomas. That Nathaniel would eventually give his life in northern Italy for the cause, being a martyr for the cause of Christ. Nathaniel's life was changed as a result of one man and one rabbi, Jesus, the son of God, saying, Nathaniel, whatever it is, I saw it, I know about it, and I still love you. What's your fig tree? Because I think that probably we've been hanging out, maybe some of us, alone by ourselves underneath that fig tree. And Jesus is looking into that thing and he's going, whatever it is, man, I saw it. And I know about it. And I still love you to death and back again. And it changes everything. See, that's the power of God. That's the power of that relationship thing that I'm talking about. And it's so important that we see, that we see beyond what maybe Nathaniel initially was seeing. It's important that we see the truth of God behind that in John chapter 1, that God is not 
an idea, that God is not a theology, God is not a philosophy, that God is not a formula to figure out or an equation to solve. God is a person to know and be known by, and it changes everything. And it just kind of strikes me, church, that that's how people change. You know, a little bit later on next month, I'm going to be celebrating 14 years with my wife. And I had the opportunity yesterday, last night, to officiate the wedding ceremony of Zach Johnson, our worship director, to Bethany. And uh, it's just a fantastic relationship, and I couldn't be more proud of them. Um, but I just, you know, I'm there, like, this far away from this couple as they, as they turn toward each other and they, and they make their vows which are really, right, aren't they just, they're a collection of rules that they're pledging to live by. And I just, it brings me back to that place of my own vows. And it just strikes me that I could, I could have kept every single one of those vows perfectly. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I had a perfect relationship In fact, keeping each one of those rules doesn't even necessarily mean that I had any relationship at all. But in fact, what what, what is true is it's because of the relationship. It's because I love her and I care about her and she loves me and she cares about me. It actually makes me want to keep the rules. It actually makes me want to change. And I think that was true for Nathaniel. That as he started following along into Jesus, that actually started, awoken something in him that, that wanted to hand his, his whole life over to somebody from Nazareth. Maybe now, this time, without the tone. He wanted to do it. That's why when Jesus is like looking for images to talk about himself, he goes, listen, I'm like the true vine, he says in John 15. I'm like the vine, you're like the branch. And the vine doesn't have to tell the branch to go here and strategically like move over here and, and do it. Otherwise, you know, replication, we're gonna, something's gonna happen. You're not gonna like bear this kind of fruit and only this kind of fruit because this is what kind of vine we are. No, 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 the vine doesn't have to do any of that because once the branch is grafted in, it just sort of happens because it's a part of that same family, that same vine, same thing. And so when Jesus is looking for an image, he also goes, he's like, I'm the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And the sheep, like, they know that. They know that when I steer them, it's not just because it's fun, it's because I'm trying to keep them away from danger. It's because I'm leading them to the next patch of grass in a desert that their life is going to depend on. I'm leading them to the next spring, the next well. I'm leading them away from some predators like the wolves that are out there. The sheep, they've learned to hear my voice and they follow after me because they trust me. Because of the relationship that's in place, that's how people, how we change. It's how we change vertically in our relationship with God when we hear that we matter, people matter, you matter, no matter what. It's also how we change horizontally in these relationships. So on Wednesday, I got to hear this story from a real guy, because I hang out with pastors a lot, and pastors aren't real people, <laughs> FYI. You know, he's a, he's a real person, Jeff. He's a real guy. He likes muscle cars and fast boats. He owns his business. And his business uh, office is located right next to a, a repair shop. 
And so he's like, it's the most convenient thing in the world, Derek, because I can just drop my car off, oil change, uh, brake work, like whatever it needs. You know, and I, don't, I just walk in at work and I walk out and it's like, it's done. It's ready for me to go home. So, I mean, this thing has been going for years, over a decade, you know. I just build a relationship with the, with the shop owners right next door because I'm there whenever anything needs to be done. It's so convenient. I just start talking to the people, the owners. It's a small shop, ma and pa type thing. So I get to know the owners. And then it just, it broke my heart when I heard, when I heard that one of them was in a, riding on a motorcycle in northern Michigan and a branch came down and he and another guy were riding side by side next to each other and the branch came down and they didn't have time to stop. They didn't have time barely to slow down before they hit it and they both died. And he's going, I know. You know, they weren't, he wasn't a Christian. He was so resistant to faith. And I try, I try to have a couple of conversations with him here and there. But it's just, it's hard. I try to give them some of the reason for the hope and the joy that I have. But that's the best I could do. He wouldn't have anything of it. So a little while later, there was the funeral service that he went to that. Tried to connect with the wife. Couldn't really talk to her. He goes home. A month later, there's a, a knock on the door. And it's the wife. And she goes, you know, Jeff, I... I saw you at the funeral and there's something you need to know. Before he went on that trip, he told me that he believes. He could believe because you just kept showing up. He believed because of the relationship he had with you. It's like that was enough for him to like break apart whatever this childhood faith told him God was or wasn't, this God says kind of thing, Jesus says. None of this whole game. He could believe because you just kept sharing the hope and the joy that you have. And I think what a powerful testimony to take one of these cards that you received maybe when you came in on the backside, there's just three slots. And to say, you've got a Nathaniel. Maybe it's true that you've got somebody like that shop owner that was in Jeff's life, just somebody that you want to pray for, somebody that you want to share your hope, your joy, whatever it is, because you may be the only Bible that they have ever read. And it's possible that the relationship that they develop, that you develop with them, changes everything with their relationship with their Heavenly Father. Maybe for the first time they will know that they matter people matter. You matter. Your neighbor matters. Your coworker matters. The guy in the job site matters. Your friends matter. Your family matters. Your kids matter. You matter. No matter what. Would you stand up and pray with me this afternoon? Gracious God, there's so, so much, um, so many other things you could be doing, you could be spending your time on rather than stopping everything and pushing pause so that you could spend time with us, people like us, Jesus. Jesus, we're in awe that you care. We're in awe that you would care enough to death and back for us. God, 
If we're the ones that need to be reminded that we have infinite value before you, find a way to do that for us this week. I ask that you bless that person in the room right now, listening online, who needs to hear that message or needs to experience your love in a new and fresh way. I pray that, God, that you give that to them this week. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to go ahead to some of these conversations with neighbors, with colleagues, guys in the job site, people in the office, friends and family, people that, people that are in our life and are those Nathaniels, skeptics, doubters, who always have a reason why they can't believe, God. I pray that you go ahead of us and just simply prepare that way so that we can give them the hope that we have, the joy that we have to tell them they matter, no matter what. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.